0: Welcome to Macintosh Mod. Haven't Seen What? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana.
1: And I'm David.
0: And today,
1: we've got a twofer! A double feature!
0: A double feature! So today we are starting with A Star is Born, 1954.
1: A film star helps a young singer and actress find fame, even as age and alcoholism send his own career on a downward spiral. It's a movie so classic that they've made it four different times.
0: Yes. Four! Four times!
1: We're only covering two, and one of the other ones we talked about incessantly when it came out a while ago. Yes, because it was very, very good. This is an immensely frustrating movie. It is. And I think this is more frustrating than our last movie, An American in Paris, because in American in Paris, at a certain point, you realize, well, they're not even gonna try with the story here, right? Like, we've given up on that hope. They have such a great story here. They have two really fantastic leads, really pouring a lot into these roles. They've got a lot going for this movie. And on just about every production front, they fucked this movie over.
0: (laughs) It's just so messy. This movie is messy. Yes. And we know there's an original before this one. And then this is like the big one. And then there's another one. And then there's the one with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Okay. And so I cannot watch this one and not compare it to the Lady Gaga one. And that one was so good. It really was. It just got blown out of the water by other better films. It just did. But it was also amazing. And so I'm comparing it to that and what was done really well.
1: Bradley Cooper took what worked from all of the different versions of this story Mm -hmm. And threaded it together in a single film. That's the magic of what he did with that movie,
0: true. And like, and the story itself is the same thing as like, yeah, this gets remade over and over again because it's an interesting dynamic. It's an interesting story, and I'm fine with all of that. And this one, I like the conflict because we hadn't seen that, you know, it's it's two, you know movie musically people. So the business is different than, you know, the,
1: the rock star people. This oh, this movie is just a slog. James Mason actually has maybe my favorite criticism of this movie. Okay. After making this, he still thought the 1937 version was superior. And the yeah. 1937 version, from what I know, is a straight drama. It has music because she performs. But it's, it's not even a musical tangentially like the Lady Gaga version where at least that one you can kind of maybe call it a musical. Okay. Quote, ours was a little thrown out of kilter because it became centered on the activities of a musical performer who happened to be the less important of the two characters. However, ours survives and ours has become a classic because Judy Garland was such an extraordinary performer. Unquote. And that is exactly the issue with this film. The performances in this movie take place as a full performance of a musical number when there are moments where that should not be the case. Yeah. There are sequences when he first sees her singing in the bar. Absolutely. We need to hear that whole song. We need to see her do that. But there are other moments where we do a full three minute song for no fucking reason. Mm hmm especially when we're on set in the middle of stuff. No, we need to see her performance and her intensity in it and then be done. When she does the rehearsal sequence at the house, make it three minutes or so. It's a comedy and levity moment, but we don't need it to go on for 10. Mm -hmm. George Cougar did not pick or choose when to put these lengthy performances in. Mm -hmm. And it weakens the strength of the really great performance sequences. The Born in a Trunk sequence is amazing, but not if every single song is going to go that fucking long.
0: There's too many songs and the songs don't serve the moments, which is the bigger problem. I mean, we all think about the performers that Judy gives when she sings the one about the man who got away. It's a beautiful song. It's so well done.
1: The night is bitter, the stars have lost their glitter, the winds grow colder.
0: Suddenly you're older, and all because of the man that got away. In the wrong moment, <laughs> it's in the wrong fucking moment, and the songs don't serve the story because I know this is Judy Garland film, so we're gonna have some Judy singing. That's what she fucking does. I have a problem with that. That's what I signed up for. These songs suck for this story, and then at the end, the moment where she should be giving her most Gut wrenching performance, we cut, we cut to black. Yeah. We don't see anything. And it's just like, no, that's where you bring it home. That's where we should have seen, you know, the first song she sang that made him fall in love with her. And that was always his favorite, or the one that they wrote together, or, or something to that effect, or that they performed it together, something that brought it back to him at that
1: moment. It's just so badly done. There was no thought to the structure of how to make the music work with the story. Mm -hmm. And what's really what, again, makes this so frustrating is that they get the melodrama part of it so right. Yeah. All of the final scenes with her and and Mason and him being tortured by what he's led her into Mm -hmm. are phenomenal. Like. All of the stuff between them is so good. The whole time, you know he's off the rails and you are just tense in every moment because of the way that he approaches her, his sort of aggressive demeanor towards her, like Mm -hmm. physically, where you're just like, oh God, this is gonna go bad. This is gonna go so bad. And like all of it just plays perfectly. And then the songs undercut all the tension. Yeah, And that's why it's you you just, you want to, Throw something at the television. It's so annoying. (laughs) Yeah. It should be so much better than it is. And I think that's what's really, really annoying about this movie. The good news is, as we get into the accolades and stuff about it, it was recognized for what is really great about it Mm -hmm. and not the stuff that we're frustrated by. Like the look, the acting, that's what's remembered about this movie. Mm -hmm. And honestly, fair. That makes sense.
0: Yeah, like I can appreciate
1: it and still say, this movie is not good. No. Before we get into any of our trivia, we've got to talk about the film itself. Mm -hmm. Because the cut of this film went on a wild, massive journey. And if you watch the version that's on HBO Max, which is where we watched it, Mm -hmm. you're going to see some really odd moments in the sequence. Yeah. This is super weird. Namely, that there's a good chunk of this movie that is done through still production photos and the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. The reason for this makes me want to burn down Warner Brothers Studios because I hate them for what they did to this. (sighs) (laughs) Huh. The original cut of this film clocked in at three hours and 16 minutes after a post-premiere screening. Now, I'm assuming, based on what I've heard, that a lot of that has to do with actual acting scenes, not musical performances. A lot more establishing of relationships. But that's still pretty long. They understood that. So they cut two scenes for 15 minutes for another post-premiere screening the next day that had one additional number in the Born in a Truck sequence. Fine. Get rid of it. And then there was a scene with them picnicking on the beach, which didn't need to add to what they'd already had with the establishing stuff. Okay, fine. After that premiere, people were going up to Judy Garland being like, don't cut anything. It's perfect. It's amazing. It's the most amazing thing we've seen. Mm -hmm. The studio took the movie and hacked away 27 minutes of film to trim it to 154 minutes. And they did this without any input or permission from George Cukor and the production.
0: Okay.
1: The scenes that they cut included Esther quitting the band, the Trinidad coconut oil shampoo sequence, Esther working at a drive-in, Norman being driven away drunk from a party, Norman asking about Esther from her landlady, seeing Esther in the Trinidad commercial, him finding Esther at the new boarding house, him driving Esther down the strip and her getting sick, the proposal number where Vicky sings, here's what I'm here for, Mm -hmm. one of the better musical sequences in the whole fucking movie. Yeah. And the lose that long face number where Vicky breaks down. All of that just got hacked out of the movie. And as George Cougar pointed out, those are the scenes that establishes the strength of the relationship of the two characters. The whole bringing together of those two was just stripped away from the movie. To make it worse, Warner took the negatives and melted them for the silver content. They didn't even keep the cut scenes so that they might be able to use them later. Yeah. When news of those cuts got out in the press, people refused to go see the movie. When we get to budget, this movie was actually a financial failure, and it is because Warner Brothers had this movie hyped by so many people and then undercut it by hacking away parts of the movie. It was destined to be a hit. Yeah. <laughs> nuts. Now, how we got to the version we have today. Film historian Ronald Haver had a retrospective of George Cougar films in 1974 at the L.A. County Museum of Art. As part of that, they showed a star as born, and he had a brochure of stills from the cut scenes of the movie. They had a bunch of production photos of all the stuff, so he included that to be like, here's what wasn't included here warner brothers are learning about this some tech within the studio found the complete original soundtrack the whole original thing Mm -hmm. so they had the sound and haver had the idea then to use the stills to recreate those scenes they didn't have the money the museum didn't but in 1981 haver got in touch with then academy president faye Kanan who is also a member of the National Committee for Film Preservation. They pitched it to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers got excited, said, yeah, absolutely. Let's restore something we should have done a long time ago. Haver got access to vaults on both coasts, had to go through leads to find private, illegally produced footage by private collectors. He actually had to use the police to track down a collector that still had a 35 millimeter negative of the lose that long face sequence. Hmm. And of all of that, he got 20 minutes of The Missing 27 back together, either by using the production stills or by finding the actual lost footage. Director George Cooper died the day before the restored version premiered in 1983. Okay. When they showed it, the audience began applauding when the lost musical numbers appeared on screen. It received a standing ovation because, I mean, this is a lost treasure of cinema type thing. Yeah. And both of Judy's daughters, Liza Minnelli and Lorna Luft, attended the premiere, and after the film, they had to be taken to a dressing room where they were crying for 20 minutes straight because they got back something lost from their mom. That's sweet. Now, lest you think that this was just a wild goose chase to find a whole bunch of stuff for this one movie, Haver actually got some other interesting artifacts out of this search. He found a negative imprint of a formerly thought lost film. The Animal Kingdom from 1932. He found a pristine 35 millimeter print of the 1934 film Of Human Bondage, and he found the original negatives for 1937's A Star Is Born. He also found costume and photo tests for the film and got a bunch of newsreel and kinescopes of the film's dual premieres in New York and LA and the first cinemascope version of The Man That Got Away, the test version, which we'll get into later that's cool so this was an epic undertaking that actually did something good for film preservation Mm -hmm. and while it is jarring to watch knowing now that that's what happened i'm like well i'm glad they tried yeah (laughs) nothing about it fixes the movie don't get me wrong but i do hate the fact that warner fucking warner brothers decided that they were just going to cut out the most important part of the story for (laughs) silver for silver
0: they hacked away at something that they didn't need to. I mean, yeah, the movie would have been that much longer, but it's just.
1: Ugh. You're going to hate them more in just a minute when we talk about our budget. Mm. <laughs> our budget was $5 million for this movie. about That equates today about 50850000 And because of the fuckery, it only grossed $4,350,000. Okay. This should have been a massive success. Oh, yeah. The fact that it nearly made its money back when people turned against it tells you just how big it would have been.
0: Yeah. It would have at least made 10. Of
1: course. On the strength of Judy Garland alone. Yeah. <sighs> it was the second most expensive film in Hollywood history, Warner Brothers' most expensive ever, and the box office failure, because of further fuckery of the Warner Brothers, ruined Judy Garland and Sidney Luft financially. Mm-hmm. You see... Jack and Harry Warner advanced Sidney, who was the producer on this film, money against his share of the profits. When the ticket sales didn't make the Warners the money back, that they fucked themselves over, they sued Luft and terminated all their future contracts. This is why Judy Garland couldn't make fucking movies anymore. Well, okay, that's not fair. I guess there's a lot of other reasons too, but... She had deals with Warner Brothers. Okay. There's a lot of
0: personal shit going on with Judy at this point that's making her very difficult to work with.
1: And we are going to get into those a lot. <laughs> okay.
0: So there's that. Then she's got this husband who ain't fucking helping her cause. Also true. So, oh, okay. This movie sucks. We're going we're gonna to cut the fat out of it, according to them. And y'all are difficult and we didn't make our money back. So we're done with y'all. Like we're officially done with y'all from a business perspective. I understand that it's still bad. And they, they set themselves up for failure, but then, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't have any sympathy for uh, the lefts on this one.
1: For me, it's not the terminating the contract part that at least you could be like, fuck it, we're done. Okay, yeah. fine. You can terminate your contract with them. It's the suing for the profits for the loan you receive back that's like, oh, fuck you, Jack and Harry. Yeah, fuck that's... off. They made it even more personal. Yeah, that's salt in the wound. For ticket receipts that you know you fucked over because everyone in the trades pointed it out. They knew that the creative team didn't do this, that you decided to do it. And that's why people didn't see the movie. You had a hit. Go fuck yourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, fuck the Warner Brothers. Literally, the Warner Brothers. Let's get on to writing. Our writer is another Broadway legend. It's Moss Hart. He worked on the books for Merrily We Roll Along, You Can't Take It With You, The Man Who Came to Dinner. Many of his stuff were made into films later, but this is really his only big screenplay. Okay. And of course, it is based on the 1937 screenplay, the original, by Dorothy Parker, Alan Campbell, and Robert Carson. Also. Very good writers. Okay. What do we think of the script for this movie? It's crap. It's crap? It's crap. I don't know if the script is crap. The script is crap. The
0: story is good. Story's good. Script's crap. Those two things are allowed to exist at the same time. See, I still think it's just the songs that are crap. No, because I think if you take out all the songs, we still have a crappy script. Hmm. Because I feel like the James Mason's character. He's written badly. I like him, but I don't feel like I go on a journey
1: with him. You know what it is, too? They have to pull punches with him because they're making a big 50s studio picture.
0: Well, there's that. And then also his character is up against Judy fucking Garland doing all these performances. And that's a part of the problem. We should have seen him performing. We needed to see him. At his best, even if he was a drunk, but him still like, like, this is why people put up with this from you, because there's this magic. That's what that's what happens. We needed to see that. And we never did.
1: He needed one last big movie role that got him some kind of acclaim. Yeah, and 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 that's why he doesn't show up for the Academy Awards, because he does this brilliant performance. Everybody loves it in the trades and stuff. And then he doesn't get nominated
0: and he doesn't get nominated and he doesn't go because he knows if he goes, he's going to sit there and he's going to drink. And then he doesn't want to do that. Uh, yeah,
1: it, and yeah, like, then he shows up drunk and you're like, oh, fuck.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like it, that, like we needed to see like his road to like, I know I have a problem and I'm going to work on it and I'm so happy for you. Because like that's the thing that makes it almost redeeming for him is that he like and we saw this in the Lady Gaga characters that he does want to support his wife, like his lady. He wants to support her. He is happy for her, but also it's costing her to be with me yeah because I'm a liability. And we didn't see uh, we didn't see any of that journey with him.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a testament to how good James Mason is as an actor. Mm-hmm. That you get at least a good chunk of that journey just by how he performs, but you're right in that it should have also been in the writing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I I would agree with that. The performances in this movie can trick you a good chunk. Like they go a long way to making this watchable.
0: They do, but it still sucks.
1: Yeah, it's frustrating. I still think, like, you're right, because the story itself is just so classic. And so.
0: And interesting and, and perfect to be reimagined and reapplied to different careers and different dynamics. After we were watching this, we were talking about that a little bit. And I was like, oh, you know what? Now I need to see I need to see more of a, a, a gender swapped or, a, or a, a gay couple going through this and how that dynamic plays.
1: Um, it would be interesting Part of it is that it's just such a classic Greek tragedy type of story. Like it just mm-hmm. is and it's it's very easy to just make the simple story plot line because it follows a very simple arc that you all you have to do is then okay, well how are we going to reimagine it for now in this mm-hmm. moment? What yeah. story do we want to tell through that very archetypal storyline? Yeah. Okay, well let's move on to someone who I think does a pretty good job except <laughs> The musical numbers, damn it. Mm -hmm. It's our director, George Kukor. Before this, he directed Dinner at Eight, 1933's Little Women, David Copperfield, The Wizard of Oz, in an uncredited role, Gone Mm -hmm. with the Wind, in an uncredited role, The Philadelphia Story, Gaslight, Winged Victory, Adam's Rib, Born Yesterday, and It Should Happen to You. After this, he does an uncredited role on Lust for Life, Wild is the Wind, My Fair Lady, and Travels with My Aunt. What do we think? of George Kugor's directing of this film. With the
0: exception of the one musical number that was done well cuz it was meant to
1: highlight Judy. Eh. <laughs> like that's that's my opinion of directing. Eh. <laughs> Again on every front it always comes back to I was like if they're not singing I really like it and if they are singing boy editing 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 like
0: <laughs> when they're singing you're interested For one solid minute and it goes on for four minutes. You're like, no, no, you get to do that two to three times, two to three times in a movie like this. You know, you got you have to see the like this is this is why she's amazing. And then you get to see a career defining performance, and then you get to see the sad performance, and then you get to have little snippets or a montage. I will accept a montage performance, fine, but no, this was too much, too
1: much. There should be basically two songs that get highlighted in this movie. The Man That Got Away and Born in a Trunk. Born in a Trunk, huge number, big epic. That's your big one. They do two in this movie, which I don't know fucking why. Because Born in a Trunk is the one. Yeah. And it's solid and it's good Mm -hmm. because that's what it's there for. And then you get the man who got away and you do that at the beginning and at the end. That's the song that comes at the end that she performs again. You see her do it in the diner where you see all this talent and beautifulness and then you reprise it at the end. Even if you want to cut it there, do one verse and let her have that moment Mm -hmm. so she can feel it. Yeah. Because, and this is undercutting what is so amazing about this actress. Yeah. We've talked about it when we've seen Judy before. She really acts her songs. She feels every emotion in them.
0: She can sell the shit out of a song. She can. That's what she's good at.
1: And she, she feels every emotion in there. Well, she,
0: she shows it yes. and she sings what she feels. And that's what makes her amazing. That's what people love her. And that's why everything that happened to her sucks. But she also made a lot of bad decisions. So, you know, um, <sighs> yeah, it's just, it sucks because you're like, yeah,
1: I want to see Judy perform. But at the same time,
0: this is too much.
1: It's all the same all the way down. It's just like, you you just kept doing all of this extra stuff for no good reason, and we didn't need to. Yep. Well, if there's something else that we can make you hate George Cougar for, it's that uh, one of his talents was to push actresses to their breaking point and capture it on film.
0: Asshole.
1: For the dressing room sequence, he pushed her into such emotionally difficult territory she vomited before the first take. Then he made her do it again and again until it was just right. And after the final take, Garland was sobbing uncontrollably. And George Cougar decided to then make a joke about silent film store Marjorie Maine not doing as well as she did to, I guess, snap the tension? Fuck you. No. And people wonder why Judy had issues.
0: This did not help. This no! This did not help with her already fragile state. Yes.
1: Again, Judy made many, many terrible decisions, but she was... She was also set up to fail. She was treated so Horribly by Hollywood, and it's a fucking shame. Ugh. Onto Cooker's actual struggles here because he had to deal with a bunch of fucking technical problems. Mm-hmm. So, originally, they did not film this in CinemaScope. They were filming in WarnerScope, a process that Warner Brothers had developed to rival CinemaScope. Oh, jeez. Now, they were trying something, whatever. Management knew that it wasn't perfect. So, Albert Warner, there's a third Warner brother, apparently, he was the head of technical and he was negotiating on the side with CinemaScope in case WarnerScope didn't work out. Like, mm-hmm. we know this might not be perfect, but they actually started filming, like, didn't just do the test runs and stuff. They actually tried to start filming with WarnerScope, which is like, what the fuck are y'all doing? <laughs> like, at least test it first. So, they shot a test version of The Man That Got Away using Warderscope and Cinemascope. Okay. I'll let you guess which one looked better.
0: Cinemascope.
1: (laughs) So now they lost $300,000, 18 days of production, and now they had to restart the film because they had to do it in Cinemascope Mm -hmm. because one, there are limitations on how Cinemascope could be used, which we'll talk about, And also, you now had a wider screen format, which meant you had more picture to show. So now you had to figure out how you were going to stage that. (laughs) Nope. What the fuck were they doing? They don't know. Oh my God, Warner Brothers. Oh my God. Then George Cougar had to figure out the Cinemascope limitations because the format had like so many restrictions on it because of how the camera worked. They were actually whole rules and experts because you couldn't have certain camera movements, colors, tight close-ups, too many quick edits. It would ruin the film process, mm. supposedly. Eventually, Cooker, production designer Gene Allen, and a color consultant, George Hoinig and Huna, looked at the rules and went, Fuck this, we're figuring it out on our own. Okay. So, this film actually became famous because of how creative and inventive it got in using Cinemascope. It was one of the first films to really test the format in a hugely mm-hmm. experimental way. And I will say, some of the montage stuff, like especially at the beginning and the lights and the way he uses the flashlight and all that stuff, there's some yeah. there's some shots in this movie that are just like, whoa, I don't see that in movies today. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it is, it is a very inventive technical film in that way. But it is funny that they basically did that out of, I'm so tired of talking with these people. Let's just figure it the fuck out. Yeah, does it look good? It looks good. Yay, let's do it. <laughs> and then for production, let's talk about the born in a trunk sequence because it's actually separate from the rest of the production. Okay The medley was designed by Roger Edens and Leonard Gersha. All of the songs were done by Arlen and Ira Gershwin. They were done by this you know superstar writing team. But the studio didn't think any of those songs fit the first half finale because they're garbage. Mm-hmm. So they called Edens, who was Judy's musical mentor at MGM. Kay. However, Edens and Gersha did not receive credit for the sequence until the restored version in 1983 because fucking Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Edens also replaced Hugh Martin, the vocal arranger for the film, who stormed off set one day after getting into it with Judy. They decided, huh, maybe we should hire the guy who knows how to work with Judy. God damn it. Mason, for his part, actually pointed out something great about the Born and Trunk number. Quote, it slows the narrative. Yes, I know it would make a lovely television special or something like that, but I thought it was out of place at that particular juncture. How did he know? How did he get it and nobody else did? I'm so proud of you, James Mason. Jeez. You fine well, Jacques, do you? Ugh. Yep. Boo. Let's talk about something good about this movie. It's our cast. It is very good. And they're phenomenal. And we start with Judy Garland playing Vicky Lester. Judy has appeared on this show before. Yes. But before this, she was in Broadway Melody of 1938, The Wizard of Oz, Babes in Arms, Strike Up the Band, Ziegfeld Girl, Thousands Cheer, Girl Craze Me, Meet Me in St. Louis. Ziegfeld Follies in 1945, The Pirate, Easter Parade, Words and Music, and Summer Stock. After this, because of all the movie issues and the personal issues, she appeared in Judgment at Nuremberg and Gay Per E as a voice actor. What do we think of Judy Garland in this film?
0: She's great. There are some moments where you can tell that she's personally not doing very well.
1: It is difficult to watch when you when you know, like Mimi and St. Louis was seven years earlier Mm -hmm. or thereabouts, and she's still full Judy Garland, Mm -hmm. a little bit older than Wizard of Oz, Judy Garland, but still full of that energy, full of that vibrance selling the songs. And you can see the stuff taking a toll on her. And it's a little hard to watch. Yep. To get into it, this was the beginning of the end for Judy. In a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. This is when her drug use really started to take a toll. She started off filming well, slowly lost control as the shoot progressed. The total production dragged over nine months, and she first called in sick on November 9th. That cost four days of production. Then she she actually got sick shooting outdoors and missed three days. She got sick for two days in December, then had to postpone a scene because she hated her costume so much that she stormed off. There were other days where she was just too sick or too tired to go on, so she would leave early. By February, there were 41 days behind schedule, and in late March, she finally had to go to rehab to get off of all prescription medications for two weeks, Mm -hmm. which also further delayed the film. Sure. We are not in some of the territory that's covered in the biopic Judy, which we talked about a little bit. Which is after this. This is after this, that's well into the 60s when yeah. she had really, really kind of hit the lowest point of that stuff and then her her little swan song come back before she passed away.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, they they talk about when Judy was, quote, sick, she wasn't always sick. After a day, Cooker would read from gossip columnist Luella Parsons that Judy was actually singing in a nightclub or she'd left early to go to the races. Mm-hmm. She wasn't actually at home resting. Yeah. Um, But the PR department refused to release this to the public To try to save face, they said the delays were due to Judy's relentless perfectionism.
0: I mean, that's nice.
1: I will give the Warner Brothers one tiny bit of credit, and it's that they at least tried to treat her with the respect due to her as a star that MGM never fucking would.
0: They knew that her name was going to sell tickets. Yes. So whatever Judy wanted, Judy got. Yes. Which wasn't great. No. It just it she just she was set up for failure from the very beginning.
1: Her story is so complicated because you go, God, I don't want to accept this from anyone, but you got such a raw deal at MGM that I feel like you've earned the right to be that much of an asshole everywhere else. Yeah, it's just
0: like of course, why wouldn't you act like this? Why wouldn't you do this? And it's like also, it's like you're making really bad decisions, but also, who's around you to model? Good? Like it's just like it's just a perfect storm of just awful. So when I, when I talk harshly about some of her choices, I do know that she was, she was not taught better. It's just, it's just hard. It's just really hard. hard. It is hard. And, and we, we loved it. The movie Judy is beautiful. And I think it really does dissect what her personal needs were really, really well. And Renee Zellweger earned that fucking Oscar. So
1: Mm -hmm. despite all of that, she's really selling this role. And I think some of the times when it, it's taking a toll on her, mm-hmm. it also pours into the performance of the stress that yes. sh- that character is under. Like it it fits the whole role perfectly. There's moments in this movie too where I go, gosh, I kind of wish she was in the Norman Main role and not the Vicky Lester role because it would be awesome. But-
0: Yes, however, I mean, that's the part that's ironic here is that she was the one living that yes and she could have played that type of role beautifully but it would not have worked if she herself had not gotten past it no i think that's key when you play a role like that is that you can have experienced that but you need to have settled those demons in order to um for it not to be creepy almost
1: yeah it it is a Powerhouse performance and it mm. and it stands up with a lot of her other ones. I mean that's her performance is one of the reasons this movie stands the test of time. Sure. Is because it's that good and it's that worth seeing. She's really good. Uh after filming finished, Judy stole some of the furniture from the sets and brought them home. Jack Warner <laughs> did not find out about this until she invited him over after the film's premiere. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's a Judy Garland move I'm totally in favor of. Well done. Yeah, I just,
0: um, just, I don't give a fuck about that. I find that more funny than anything else. I
1: mean, fuck Jack Warner. Like, fuck Jack Warner.
0: Sure,
1: sure. I, It's just funny. I, I find that funny. Let's move on to another fantastic actor, one who also did not live up to any of what his character did. hmm We have James Mason playing Norman Maine. Mm-hmm. Before this, he was in so many unknown, probably British movies of the 30s and 40s. And then really has some notable roles starting in 1949 with Madame Bovary, East Side West Side, The Desert Fox, The Story of Rommel, Julius Caesar, Prince Valiant, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. After this, Bigger Than Life, North by Northwest, Journey to the Center of the Earth, A Touch of Larceny, The Trials of Oscar Wilde, Lolita, The Fall of the Roman Empire, Lord Jim, Genghis Khan, Georgie Girl, The Seagull, Cold Sweat, The Last of Sheila, The Macintosh Man, Voyage of the Damned, Cross of Iron, 1978's Heaven Can Wait, The Boys from Brazil, Murder by Decree, and The Verdict. He had a very long career mm-hmm. all the way after this. It is such an irony because he he was just a just an actor doing his thing. Had a full long career. What do we think of James Mason in this movie?
0: Oh, he's great. He sells it very, very well. And playing drunk is hard. It's so hard. (laughs) It's just, uh, we've talked about this a lot. If you try to play just drunk, you're dead. Like you're just dead in the water. Uh, That rarely works for anybody. He's tapped into something that is just like, wow. And you just look at him and go, that's somebody who's got a problem and they are not okay. Okay. I know most of you sitting out there by your first names, don't I? I made a lot of money for you, gentlemen, in my time through the years, haven't I? Well, I need a job now.
1: Yeah, that's it. That's that's, that's that's the speech. That's it. I need a job. That's what I wanted to say. I. I need a job. It's as simple as that. I. I need a job, that's
0: all. And that's what you need. That's what you need when you see him is you need to instantly understand what the problem is. and he does he does a great job. and then he's just so sweet with Judy because I, I' I'm that's the po- I think I've gotten to the point now with movies where I just don't learn any character's name. <laughs> this is a problem.
1: To be fair, they change the names a lot in this movie.
0: She does change I know she does change her name, but he's just so sweet with Judy, and you're like, okay, I get it like i get like you you get why she would be attracted to him and there's a sweetness there and there's some like there's like almost a quiet between the two of them that like oh clearly neither of them gets this anywhere else so this is part of the deal and he's so
1: good the thing that's really amazing about him is that this is a melodrama it requires a different type of acting than what we would get from Bradley Cooper and the in the 2000s version, right? Like, Bradley Cooper can't do what James Mason is doing in this new version because it is a melodrama. It Mm. requires a different kind of acting. He still writes that line perfectly because not only does he know who his character is, he also knows what movie he's in. And so he will ratchet up the emotions if he needs to, and then he will keep it quiet in the quieter moments. He matches the tone of the scene he's in so perfectly. And that, to me, is is what makes it so outstanding and impressive and a standout for this in particular. Is like he he knows exactly how to match the energy of whatever scene he's in. Cause you know, out of context, when you see him just losing it in the bedroom while they're talking about him outside, you might think this is over. This is hamming it up, right? This is overdone. Yeah. But then you go, no, it actually is perfect for that moment, especially after what we've seen of him throughout this whole movie.
0: Yeah. And he is able to hold the exact right amount of focus when he's with her while still allowing things to be about her. But like, you're still interested in him. He does the exact right amount of nothing.
1: James Mason's one of those actors who, you know, deserves all the credit in the world. And because of the era he was in Mm -hmm. and the roles he got, Mm -hmm. he was always going to be a little overshadowed. But like, he's just so good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He's just a really good actor. Now there are some who could have been betters for this role. Okay. And for a variety of surrounding reasons, many actors would not take this role because the role was that of a has been actor. I get that. (laughs) That
0: makes sense to me.
1: What now performing actor wants to portray themselves that way to then somehow get typecast into that, you know?
0: Oh yeah. Like I if I play this then I become this. That's what the fear <laughs> is. That That's the fear
1: of that. And there are some other reasons that we'll point out as we get to certain names, but we are going to start with George Cougar's first choice, which was Marlon Brando. Cougar was directing Julius Caesar. Brando starred in that version of Caesar. And he offered Brando the role. Brando said, quote, Why would you come to me? I'm in the prime of my life. If you're looking around for some actor to play an alcoholic has-been, he's sitting over there. Brando pointed... To his co-star, James Mason.
0: Oh. Okay, so, like, well-documented, Brando's a dick, and we hate him, and he's canceled yeah. forever, even though he's dead, I don't care.
1: That's a sick burn. It's a sick burn, <laughs> and, on, and on the other hand, Brando's actually very right there, and I'm sure, like, if James Mason was in on the joke, uh-huh. and it wouldn't shock me if he was, it would make a lot of sense. Because Brando's like... I am literally just now starting to be a movie star. Why would you put me shit. in this
0: role? Yeah,
1: no, no, no totally. <laughs> like, I have to assume in context, that was more than like, what? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's the exact wrong role for me, my dude.
0: No, I, I get that. Like, <laughs> but fuck Brando.
1: <laughs> Pretty rough burn there. But hey, Mason got the fucking role. So <laughs> who's laughing? Yeah. All right, let's talk about some others who didn't want to do it. Humphrey Bogart. <sighs> he could have been interesting in this role it would have been a very different movie but he could have been interesting
0: he would have been so reserved
1: there would need to be a much better script if bogey was going to pull this off mm-hmm. but bogey does have the right temperament to do this role sure he does montgomery clift Ooh. very troubled actor he actually turned it down because it hit way too close to home for him there gary cooper a little too pretty a little, little too of a, a leading man type to do this. Henry Fonda. Ooh. I love Henry Fonda. Great actor. But no. No. Errol Flynn. Now I'm going to say no. In theory, yes. In practice, fuck that man forever. He needs to die in the flames of hell. <laughs> because he was a nightmare human. <laughs> and he would have tormented Judy. He really would have. He could never have done that role. Mm. Carrie... Grant, oh, Carey would have brought the same type of feeling as James Mason. He really, would've. he could have done it. He could have. He's so pretty. He actually initially accepted the role, and then later on, he reneged because he was going into what he said was semi-retirement. Later on, after his passing, his widow put in a biography that he actually did it because. Garland's drug use was causing so many issues, and he decided mm. to drop out for that reason.
0: Interesting.
1: Mm, but yes, Cary Grant would have done just as well, if not better.
0: Love Cary Grant.
1: Sir Lawrence Olivier. No. Oh, you doubt the power of Sir Lawrence Olivier. He could have done that easily. No. Here's a better name Richard Burton. Yep. Oh, man. Hells yeah. Richard Burton and James Mason are almost the same person. James Mason just happens to not be a troubled alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. That that's the difference there. Gregory Peck? Yeah, mm-hmm. Gregory Peck can't do these type of roles.
0: No, I don't I don't think that would have been good for him.
1: Frank Sinatra? No. The only people who wanted them were Judy and Sidney Luft, because they were good friends of his, but at that point, Frank was considered box office poison. I don't know why, but and finally, James Stewart.
0: Jimmy Stewart? Yeah. No.
1: No, not That's Jimmy. No,
0: No, the only one on that list that would have been as good or better is Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cary
1: Grant. But you know what? We got James Mason. I wouldn't give anything up for that.
0: I'm, I ain't mad about that.
1: No. All right. For our three other main roles, supporting roles, really, we have Jack Carson playing Matt Libby, the asshole PR guy. Mm -hmm. Before this, he was in It Could Happen to You from 1937, Stage Door, Stand In, Bringing Up Baby, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Destry Rides Again, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, 1941, Arsenic and Old Lace, Thank Your Lucky Stars, Hollywood Canteen, Mildred Pierce, April Showers, and The Good Humor Man. After this, Ain't Misbehavin' and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. What do we think of Jack Carson in this movie?
0: He's all right.
1: So evil. He started off not thinking he's evil, because like he's trying to do all this stuff for people. And then it was like, ooh, I hate you. You're the worst.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I just, honestly, he didn't have a huge impact on me.
1: Hmm. That's fair, too. That character could have been way more. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the writing, or just that he's just sort of a, I'm a 40s character actor kind of guy.
0: Maybe a little bit of both.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. We have Charles Bickford playing Oliver Niles, the studio head. Before this, he was in The Former Takes a Wife, Pride of the Marines, Of Mice and Men from 1939, The Song of Bernadette, Captain Eddie, Fallen Angel, Brute Force, The Babe Ruth Story, and Jim Thorpe, All-American. After this, he was in Not as a Stranger, The Big Country, The Unforgiven, and on television, The Virginian, maybe his best known role. Okay. What do you think of Charles Bickford in this movie? Playing the erstwhile Sam Elliott role. He was okay. These are big characters with not a lot given to them to do.
0: Yeah, he's okay. I just, again, he didn't he didn't make a ton of impact on me. Like, other than our two leads, it's just kind of like, okay.
1: What is nice is that there is a character outside in the studio that does care about Norman. Mm-hmm. Like, Oliver is very much a movie man. But he does care about, like, people. Libby doesn't Mm -hmm. (laughs) at all. And had they given Libby more time, he could have been a real, like, PR villain or pseudo villain character. But at least we do get that from Bickford's performance and character is like, I do have to make some tough decisions here, but I also am going to try to help if I can. Sure. (laughs) Because I run this show and I'm allowed to do that. (laughs) That's just, that's a nice refreshing thing. But again. Two really good character actors who kind of get wasted. Agreed. And to add to that, we also have another character actor getting wasted Tommy Noonan playing Danny Maguire. Before this, he was in Boys Town, the 1945 Dick Tracy, Adam's Rib, and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. After this, The Best Things in Life Are Free, Bundle of Joy, and Promises, Promises. Danny should be so much more important to this movie. Mm-hmm. Such a bigger deal than what he gets in this. I don't. Did we have a similar character in the new version? I don't think she really has a counterpart like that, does she? Maybe early on with the with the guy at the club. A little bit, but I think her dad functions that way a little bit too. Yeah, that's fair.
0: I don't feel like there's one person. I think it's her friend from the club and her dad act as kind of those grounding people. And then the Sam Elliott character kind of works for both of them.
1: Yeah, because I don't hate having that character as a part of the story. It mm-hmm. reminds me a little bit of uh, Roddy McDowell and Funny Lady, who we were like, "Ugh, more of him, more of him. Yes, He's so good and such a good counterpart in the storyline. And Danny could have easily been that here. Mm-hmm. And instead, we just get these little snippets of moments where it feels like, well, what the fuck is he doing talking to her at this point? Mm-hmm. Wastes. Wastes of character actors, don't do that Hollywood. And that leads us into our random people of note. And once again, we have lots of good ones. Amanda Blake playing Susan Ettinger. She was the leading lady, Miss Kitty Russell on Gunsmoke. She actually held the record for the longest appearance as the same character on television for 19 years until Mariska Hargitay surpassed her for Special Victims Unit. Okay. Which is bonkers. Mm -hmm. Despite being credited, her role did get cut right after the premiere. Okay. So she only gets restored in this version through production stills, but she was in it. We have James Brown, not the singer James Brown, but a different James Brown. He actually had to change his name to James L. Brown to avoid confusion with the singer. Mm -hmm. Uh, He plays Glenn Williams, and he was one of the lead's Lieutenant Rip Masters on The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin. Okay. Along with playing a number of roles as a military man. That's what he got typecast into. Paul Brinniger playing a man at the funeral, he was the long-running sidekick character with Clint Eastwood on Rawhide for television. Benny Burt, playing a courtroom reporter, he was the bartender in the apartment. Mm-hmm. In that wonderful bar scene. Catherine Card, playing the landlady, she was Mrs. McGillicuddy on I Love Lucy. Oh, wow. Also only gets semi-restored in this. Mm. <sighs> Lauren Chapin, playing a little girl at the boarding house. She was one of the child stars on To Father Knows Best. Okay. Ray Heindorf, playing himself at the premiere. He is the composer of the film Score. The actual fun bit about this is that Matt Libby walks over to him and says, Hey, Ray, great score. The best. That's funny. Nancy Culp, playing Esther's neighbor. She was Jane Hathaway on The Beverly Hillbillies and Miss Gruniker in the original Parent Trap.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Struther Martin, the evil captain from Cool Hand Luke, plays a delivery boy in this movie. Oh, wow. And the poor man's James Mason himself, John Saxon, appears as a movie premiere usher. We've already talked about him in both A Nightmare on Elm Street and Enter the Dragon. Okay. And that leads us into awards. This was nominated for six Academy Awards. It lost all of them.
0: Mm-hmm. We
1: will end with the most controversial decision. Okay. For best actor, James Mason. Okay. For best art set decoration, color. It lost. For best costume design, color. It lost. For best original song from Harold Arlen and Ira Gershwin, The Man That Got Away. Hell yeah, that's going to be the song you push.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And best score, Ray Heindorf. Now, the controversial bit is that Judy Garland lost Best Actress that year Mm -hmm. to Grace Kelly in a film called The Country Girl. Hmm. As Groucho Marx would quote, it was the biggest robbery since Brinks. (laughs) Many, many people in the industry believed that Judy was completely and thoroughly robbed of this Oscar.
0: I mean... I haven't seen the other films. (laughs) So I can't speak to that. The nomination, I can say absolutely. But I I can't say, well, yeah, she totally deserves it.
1: Yeah. What I will say is that there was no way James Mason could ever win. This was the year that Marlon Brando won for On the Waterfront. And that's a watershed moment. There's no way. Absolutely not. Up against... The other actresses in this category are Dorothy Dandridge for Carmen Jones, Mm -hmm. Jane Wyman for Magnificent Obsession, and Audrey Hepburn in Sabrina. Okay. But Judy's the one pouring the most into this movie. I wonder
0: if the vote got
1: split. Well, Hedda Hopper reported that Kelly won the closest Oscar vote up until that point that did not result in a tie. There were only six votes that separated the two of them.
0: I mean... You know, I, I that's just the
1: you know. It's widely reported through different sources that Judy was incredibly crushed by this, mm-hmm. partially because she had invested so much emotionally in the role. Yeah, and having put that much into it, they said this was a big factor of her never really recovering. Like she put all of that effort in and lost to Grace Kelly, who many believed did not even near live up to what Judy did on screen.
0: Fair, I mean. Uh, It's
1: It's a stupid reason to get that upset, but I do understand when you've put that much of yourself into it and all the other shit they pulled.
0: (laughs) I understand it taking a while to personally recover from that. Yeah. To just having, feeling that devastated. But, you know, you make a comeback, but because the rest of her life was also very devastating, that makes it very
1: hard. Uh, It's it's harsh, but... Also, Judy can't just be that devastated by that. I think the financial ruin was probably a lot bigger a deal for her. <laughs> oh, sure. Because that effectively pushed her out of movies. So, like, oof. Oof. damn, The movie business was never, never going to be kind to her. All right, let's do some final pieces of trivia. Okay. While James Mason did not have a career nearly similar to Norman Maine's, he did work steadily until his passing, but he did find a protege that he helped bring up. Ooh. Sam Neill. Ooh. James Mason helped uh, help foster Sam Neill, which, you know, those two very similar acting styles.
0: I can see that.
1: Sam Neill does that wonderful thing, too, of matching the tone of the scene he is in, knowing the right energy to bring in any moment. Very good at that. <laughs> The set pieces for the Lose That Long Face sequence were created by taking facades left over from A Streetcar Named Desire and spray painting them white. <laughs> okay. I mean, fair. They went sure. for that whole abstract look, but then they went, well, it's, it's New Orleans. We'll just do the same thing, but we'll just make it all blotchy and gray. <laughs> <laughs> the man that got away was filmed in three different color schemes and setups to allow them to pick which one worked best. Mm-hmm. And there's slight variations in each. In one version, Tommy Noonan gently nudges Judy Garland off the piano bench to sing, and in another, she is serving coffee to several of the band members before she starts singing. The various versions of the number are included in DVD extras for the film if you purchase the movie and watch that. Okay. Because of all the restoration efforts, they've got all of this extra footage that you can check out and watch, and it's also probably on YouTube. The New York premiere was such a big deal, and this premiered in both New York and L.A., but in New York, the lines were so big, they had to hold it at two different theaters.
0: Oh, wow.
1: That's what a big deal this movie was. Mm. The moment where Esther's widow's veil is ripped from her face happened in real life with another starlet. During the service for her husband, Mike Todd, Elizabeth Taylor had a fan run up to her and rip the veil from her face. Hmm. Another actress who had Hollywood throw every single pile of shit at her. Like, Elizabeth Taylor did not have it easy either.
0: No, but she wasn't as susceptible to it. She did not have as many personal demons.
1: Especially when she finally decided to leave Richard Burton.
0: (laughs) Well, the woman got married a lot, and that's, you know whatever, but she did not have as many personal demons as a result of her Hollywood treatment.
1: This was not the first time Judy Garland performed the role of Vicki Lester. Hmm. She played Vicki in a CBS radio adaptation of the original film in 1942. Okay. And finally, Arlen and Gershwin, writing all the songs for this, also wrote four songs for a film competing against this film with Paramount. That film was The Country Girl. Oh. Oh. 50s Hollywood is a mess, man. It's man. a fucking mess. Uh, and that leads us to ratings. For every film, we have our own specific rating system for this film.
0: <laughs> I almost want to be mean and do lost Oscars.
1: Oh, oh no. So That's rough. Calvary that one's Awards.
0: rough. Well, in the movie, she wins.
1: Uh, This is true. She does win it, which... Mm. (laughs) It's harsh but fair.
0: I'm going to go with two. Ooh, okay. All right. I really like the story, and there are performances that are really great but aren't honed very well because of all of the extra bullshit. So it's a two. It's a two for me.
1: I'm going to reverse how I felt about An American in Paris, I'm going to go two and a half. Oh. I mean, yes, it's a mess. It's a mess of a movie. The performances are striving so hard in spite of a really messy story and a Mm -hmm. really messy job directing. And the songs just don't work at all. But from both the performance value and the parts of the story that work in between the songs for me, Mm -hmm. which I think are really good, And then also the historical value of this movie and the story, like the fact that it even got made and like lasted is wild. There's enough there to keep me interested. It's also just so immensely frustrating. I can't go any higher than that for sure. Yeah. Because it should be so much better than it is. Like so light years better than it is. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of a mess. So it is what it is. That being said, we have another version to go watch.
0: Yeah, this is a twofer. So we gotta go watch number two. Or rather, number three.
1: (laughs) We're done with Judy. And now it is time.
0: Barbara. Barbara. (laughs)
1: Uh, And Chris Christopherson.
0: We go. All right, now we've watched A Star is Born, 1976.
1: A has-been rock star falls in love with a young, up-and-coming songstress.
0: Oh my God, (laughs) this film is so bad, so bad.
1: I will save it for the ratings, but this is going very surely in the top worst films we've ever watched for this show.
0: It's so bad.
1: Literally nothing about this movie works. I mean, nothing. Mm, mm Mm-mm. Head to toe, I ch- I looked for any possible redeeming value and there is nothing here. The songs are shit. The performances are shit. The script is terrible. It looks like garbage. It
0: looks like hot garbage. Even the costume with the exception of one costume I, like what the fuck are you wearing Barbara? <laughs> it's bad. It's just bad from top to bottom and it's like they took everything from the 50s version and they just shat on it.
1: (laughs) That image, while amusing, is also very fucking true. Like, There's there's not a whole lot we can talk about with this movie because I don't have a way to save it. You have to literally change everything. What's fascinating is the new version Mm -hmm. took the very bare-bones structure of this movie. That's Mm -hmm. literally all he took from it
0: he took the rock star angle.
1: And that that made sense, right? You're when you're going to do this now, Hollywood stars are not really that sort of thing with like a big giant stage like that. Pop musicians are going to have more of a celebrity presence.
0: Well, I mean I mean it's it's set in the present day but made to look very 70s, which is totally fine. It's still very of today. But the new one took that framework of like okay we're gonna we're gonna do the rock star thing instead of the movie star thing okay totally fine and they made esther pursuing performing but not necessarily pursuing fame yeah so that changes it to a degree and yeah and it's just the like honestly it's the best version it's the best like we haven't seen the original original it's the best
1: one it really we, is. We pointed it out with the 50s one that he took the best elements from both of those. Mm-hmm. And in the 50s version, the best element are the character arcs, the struggle, and the, the melodrama of it. Now, he toned that down a bit because he's making a more realistic film. Sure. But he really did take a lot of those specific story elements, those moments, and he really peppered them in. Mm-hmm. That was something that's really noticeable watching that first one. And in this one, <laughs> In this one, he literally just went, well, there's at least a premise that I can maybe use from that and then fuck the rest of this.
0: He's a rock star and that's that's literally the only thing that they took because everything else is just so badly done. Oh, and, and the Grammys, that's it. And the Grammys, <laughs> and the Grammys
1: instead of the Oscars. That's fucking cocaine. The movie, like, there's that's all there is. It's so bad. Cocaine and sparkles. That's all this movie is built on. Cocaine and sparkles. And you know, I guess it worked for them. The budget for this film was only six million dollars. That equates to about twenty-nine million dollars today. It grossed eighty million dollars. Wow. That's the equivalent of $385 today. Okay. That's stupid. (laughs) I I don't disagree. Like, was this just off of pure date nights that, you know, well, I like this country musician, and I like Barbara, and we're just going to go see it. How how the fuck did you make that much money off of something this terrible? I mean, that is how it's done. That's how they make that kind of money. It didn't even have- what I kept thinking was that they were going to have more celebrity appearances,
0: mm-hmm. more
1: musicians showing up playing in a concert, because then you get away with it. Well, it's a concert film, you know? Sure. And so, like, yes, it's a little bit shady, but you're also getting some extra performances from some people you didn't know. So you get the rock and roll crowd in. Mm-hmm. But they didn't even do that. Nope. <laughs> and the rock songs are so bad. Hey, look who- They are not good. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'll never get the line, love soft as an easy chair, out of my fucking head. Oh, yes. We've been making fun of that a lot. In the fact that the the song that is the centerpiece of this fucking movie, we are meant to believe that Esther is this just masterful musician, and she literally writes fucking Moonlight Sonata. Yeah. (laughs) I hate this movie. I hate it so much. You do. You do hate this movie a lot. It was enraging, but it made so much fucking money. Yeah. (sighs) All right. Well, we can dig for clues and see how it got so bad. We can't really dig for anything redeeming from it, other than maybe trashing on Barbara Streisand. Mm -hmm. So this film was written by so many people. (laughs) Okay. There are three actual credited screenwriters and seven total screenwriters. And one additional who could have been better additional screenwriter, Mm -hmm. which already tells me what the fuck Uh, already tells me exactly what I need to know about how little you've done here. Yeah. So the original screenplay was co-written by John Gregory Dunn and the novelist of legend Joan Didion. Hmm. Now, those two had written a handful of other movies together. Before this, they wrote The Panic in Needle Park and Play It As It Lays. After this, they wrote True Confessions and Up Close and Personal. Okay. Didion and Dunn actually wrote their original screenplay after spending three months on the road with Led Zeppelin, Uriah Heep, and Jethro Tull. They actually got a fly-on-the-wall view of the Rockstar lifestyle to try to write it into this script. Mm. How much you want to bet that original script is not bad? It's probably messy because they're probably not the best screenwriters in the world. Yeah. But it's probably better than what we fucking got. Yeah. (laughs) Because at least it would have been real. It would have been based on something in truth. The other credited screenwriter we have is Frank Pearson, who we have talked about before with Cool Hand to Luke and Dog Day Afternoon. Both movies, which, warts and all, you can say still fairly good scripts. Mm -hmm. Frank Pearson, not a bad writer. Now uncredited on this film, Jonathan Axelrod, who... Really never wrote anything else. He's mostly been a TV producer. Jay Presson Allen, who wrote Marnie Cabaret Funny Lady, Death Trap, and The Verdict. Alvin Sargent, who, among other things, helped write Paper Moon, The Way We Were, The Electric Horseman, Ordinary People, and the original Spider-Man films from the 2000s. Mm. And Barbara Streisand, who's literally only ever written one other movie. And that's the movie she produced all on her own, Yentl.
0: Mm
1: -mm. How about I add to this that Arthur Lorenz, who co-wrote West Side Story and also wrote The Way We Were, was also asked to do rewrites on this film of the four people that had already done rewrites. Mm -hmm. Did we kill this by committee? Is that how we decided to do this movie? I think so. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's just it's that but it's
0: also Death by a Thousand Cuts.
1: Well, like Diddy and, and Dunn, the movie that I know here, I haven't seen it, but I know the Panic in Needle Park, and that is an early, before he was really famous, Pacino playing a heroin addict mm-hmm. in New York. And it's, it's a very gritty, indie, shot on the fly type movie, because mm. it was the whole intent was it's following the lives of these people going into this horrible drug hole, which makes a lot of sense for this fucking movie. Oh, yeah. For this story, yes. And when we talk about some of the casting choices that were possible for this movie, holy shit, that would have worked really well. But what we got, Barbara brought in fucking Broadway people to make it a show. It has to be a show. But this isn't a show. God, it, they threw so much of that energy on this. Mm-hmm. They were like, let's make it a, a spectacle. And I was like, fuck you. I'm... So annoyed. Not even the original, which has so many of those moments, and I know we complain about it, but even then, when it's time to not be a fucking spectacle Broadway thing, they tone it the fuck down. (sighs) And they refuse to even try here. (laughs) This is so annoying. Oh. Let's talk about our director, who is also for this, Frank Pearson. Now, he really didn't direct a whole lot. He was primarily a screenwriter. Before this, he directed a film called The Looking Glass War, 1971. Mm-hmm. And after this, he did a bunch of television movies, but this is really his only film. And that seems to be due to the fact that Barbara Streisand made his life a living hell. So much so that he wrote a first-person account published in New York and New West magazines talking through all of the horrible experiences he had working with her about how egocentric, manipulative, and controlling she was. Oh. In fact... For a handful of smaller scenes, she apparently directed them, not letting Frank do it, and he argued with her about whether they were even useful to the film. How much you want to bet it was all that bullshit that was happening on the ranch? hmm <laughs> Wow. That we did like five different times. We were suddenly on his ranch and we like riding on horses and playing in the mud and doing poses while he gets the the backhoe out to dig out the hole for the foundation and you're like what the fuck am i watching
0: <laughs> i don't i don't
1: know Is a long frustrated sigh just how we talk about this film from now on
0: uh yeah that's that's the only way to do
1: it do you have anything good to say about the directing of this film no no
0: <laughs> no i don't because a good director could have like narrowed down some of these moments of the script and like could have polished the turd a little bit. Like it could have.
1: Like it could at least be watchable.
0: Yes. This film is not watchable. And it is a direct combination of bad direction and a horrible script. This film is not fun to watch at all.
1: No. It's it's not. It's not. It's just straight garbage. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not good. Despite the disastrous process of making the film, though, it came in under schedule and under budget. Well, good for them. <laughs> put that feather in their cap. We have a lot of who could have been better here.
0: Oh, yes. Yes.
1: Some very legitimate ones uh-huh. that were you know actually involved and then some that were pitched. Okay. The original director for the film was Jerry Schatzberg. He actually directed The Panic in Needle Park, which we talked about, and a film called The Seduction of Joe Tynan, among others. He actually quit the film because Barbara refused to think of Esther as a Janis Joplin-like figure. Now, I don't necessarily hate that decision, depending on what he was going for with Janis Joplin.
0: Sure, but the, the thing is, in this script, she's not Janis Joplin. In this script, she doesn't also have a drinking or drug problem. Right. Or if that was some kind of her style, or if Esther was going to be somebody who used to have a drinking problem, and that's part of her hesitation to be around somebody with a drinking problem, which would have been an interesting layer, that would have been cool. I would have been all for the Janice Joplin, but that's not in the script.
1: That's not what this story is. And it never has been. So No,
0: so I don't, I don't disagree with
1: that. Now, that concept did wind up getting made a few years later. Mm-hmm. A little film called The Rose with Bette Midler. Oh, okay. In which our main starlet is the one who is self-destructive. A film that we will probably need to cover in a musical series at some point. We can cover the other side of the 70s rock musical and see how it, how it fares up. That was directed by another candidate for this movie. Mark Rydell. Okay. He dodged the bullet on this one and made possibly a superior film. <laughs> also, who could have been better? Bigger names. Peter Bogdanovich. He got pitched this as a vehicle for his then-girlfriend, Sybil Shepard. Hmm. Okay. Which is a whole other Hollywood story of weirdness and yuck. Arthur Hiller, who directed Love Story and Man of La Mancha. Oh, okay. Hal Ashby. Okay. Now, I know okay. we've had We've we've had our complaints about shampoo, Uh yeah. But I don't think Hal Ashby was the problem with that. I like Hal Ashby; he's kind of the right guy to do a a grittier version of A Star Is Born for the seventies. He needs a
0: better script, though,
1: and he needs better actors. Yeah, there's a casting choice here that when we get to cast, there's the Mm -hmm. there's a choice that I went, oh my god, I wish this was the movie we made.
0: Hal Ashby could do this film if it had a decent script and not these people yes. in it
1: nothing nothing's gonna save that's script. robert altman eh. i know how you feel about altman so <laughs> I'm, I'm not that impressed he made nashville who cares <laughs> i'm not impressed <laughs> and sydney lumet
0: <laughs> he's not the right guy for
1: that if i'm gonna pick anybody it's gonna be hal ashby but yeah. you do have to save all this other stuff but again he captures the '70s in a really good way. I, I I don't disagree with that. That's the guy I want for this movie. But um, again, dodged a fucking bullet. Let's talk about our. Do we have to? Yeah, we do.
0: No, why did we do this to ourselves?
1: We start with with the lady herself, Barbara Streisand. Barbara. 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 Playing Esther Hoffman. <laughs> We have already discussed her at length three different times on this show. We had pretty good marks for her for Funny Girl, outstanding marks for Hello Dolly, and throw it in the garbage for Funny Lady. This one, take it, put it in the garbage, light it on fire, throw it in the ocean.
0: Yeah, pretty much. She's only allowed to be a singer. You are no longer allowed to be a, an actress. this That's my opinion.
1: No, Barbara has a lane. Barbara's very good at being a cabaret and torch song singstress that's what she's good at that's what she's always been good at here's
0: the problem barbara is not the boss and she cannot be allowed to be the boss she was great in hello dolly you want to know why because fucking gene kelly was the goddamn boss mm-hmm. yeah that's the problem she
1: thinks she's the boss of everything and she's not well and that's why it's just like Let her just put on one-woman shows forever. Fuck it. That would be entertaining. You could do that and I'd watch it because that's what Barbara can do. I wouldn't. She has a beautiful voice.
0: That's it. I'm done. I'm not interested (sighs) in anything else she has to offer.
1: My God, just absolute trash. She, She has no concept of what moment she's in ever in this movie. She's just shoving all this melodramatic overacting at us the entire time no matter what the scene has.
0: She doesn't know what character she is. No. Which speaks to bad directing.
1: And she has a co-star here who is not a bad actor, Mm -hmm. but has a very specific lane that he is good at. Mm -hmm. And she does not try to meet his level ever.
0: No, the only time where I feel like she knows what she's doing is in that first scene where they meet where she's doing her act and she's pissed at him for interrupting. Yes. That's the only scene. It's also the only scene where I thought her outfit was like, yeah, that's a cool outfit. That's very 70s, but also like a little stagey. Like, it has a lot of personality. I was like, the, everything worked in that scene. It was the one scene where I was like, this is working.
1: Esther's wardrobe came from Barbara Streisand's I, closet. I Hence the credit for the film, quote, Miss Streisand's clothes from dot, dot, dot her closet, unquote. She styled herself,
0: and that's why she looks horrible. Yes. <laughs> Yes. That's not to say she has bad clothes.
1: No, and she looks
0: fabulously 70s, but it's
1: terrible for the
0: movie. It doesn't make any sense for the movie and the character. When she goes to that concert and she's wearing that like sweater, I'm like, what the fuck are you wearing?
1: The sunset poncho with the head wrap?
0: Yeah, like, she, looks like <laughs> she, she looks like she's wearing a beanie, and it's just like, what are you doing? Do
1: it. Every time she shows up in a fucking costume, you look at her going, who are you? You are not a real human.
0: When they go look at the land, what she's wearing there is very much an album cover outfit and that looked that looked gorgeous because of the wind blowing and then he's wearing like that all white outfit like that looked really good i'll give them that and then the super the superman when she when they're building like that's kind of okay like this little cheeky i'll allow it any other time i don't know what the fuck she's wearing
1: Shouldn't have fucking Bob Dylan suit for the Relief Fund concert? That's a little weird. I was like, she looks like 66 Dylan. What the fuck are we doing?
0: When she should have been Bianca Jagger. Come on.
1: Now, we, we would be remiss if we did not mention a man who has come up on this show before. Mm-hmm. Her then boyfriend and hairdresser, John Peters. <laughs> a man widely known to be a fucking tyrant. Uh-huh. And drug addled asshole. Yeah. Guarantee you he had a lot of input about this fucking perm and the styling. Uh, this is one of three films they worked on together, but mm-hmm. he got the production credit. So much so that he was discussed in Shampoo as one of the inspirations for Warren Beatty's character. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, other stars born director Bradley Cooper will be playing John Peters later this year in Licorice Pizza.
0: Yeah, very funny, a weird, <laughs> funny connection. And that <laughs> film takes place during this time period. So it's just funny.
1: This is John's fault that we got Barbara. It's John Peter's fucking fault. OK, because Barbara was going to pass on this film. OK, she didn't think she wanted to do it. And he's the one that convinced her. Um, uh, you know. Can I tell you who could have been better here? Yes, please. share. OK. Oh, would have been so great, right? Lots of Lady Gaga vibes there, maybe a little bit. This would have been before
0: Moonstruck.
1: Oh, well before. Yeah,
0: Moonstruck was in the 80s.
1: This is just off the tail of Sonny and Cher.
0: Okay, yeah, that's what what I'm like. I'm trying to like place it time-wise. We know Diana's not great with history. Okay, who else? Who else we got?
1: Liza Minnelli. Mm. Still a little too showy for me. Just a little too showy.
0: Liza would have been great. And we need a different script. Liza would have done a fabulous job. Liza's a phenomenal actress.
1: Helen Reddy. Who's that? I am woman. Oh. Hear me roar. Eh. And Diana Ross. Oh. Oh. Barry Gordy refused to release her for Motown for the role. I believe that. My number one My number number is, is Diana, Diana Ross. Because it's such a 70s good movie. It is. I also wouldn't hate Cher. Because this is Cher coming off the peak of her fame as a transitional type movie. If she decided to do this, it would be good.
0: Yeah, but it also really depends on who their counterpart is. This is fair. And are we keeping this script? Well, we can't keep this script. Because we hate this script. And, you know, is, are we going to have an element where she also has a substance abuse problem or not? Because, um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting element. So I don't know. But my first choice is Diana Ross of,
1: of those. And Cher would be interesting. Either of those two are still also better against Chris Christopherson. Period. Hands down, Barbara and Chris Christofferson, both as musicians, as singers, and in style and personality, have nothing in common.
0: No. So I think Liza Minnelli against Chris Christofferson would have been better because it would have allowed Liza to play a different tone. Hmm. Cher or Diana Ross are playing Cher. Diana Ross.
1: Well, that is also
0: true. That's the music they will be doing in this role. (laughs) Uh, Like, no shade to their acting ability. But at this time, if they are in this movie, they are playing themselves. Liza Minnelli, while a singer, was an actress first. Also true. So it would have allowed her to do that while also playing homage to a role that was famous for her mom.
1: Well, mm. yeah. I'm sure that was part of the reason she was considered. Oh,
0: one well, she was considered for a lot of things because of her mom and her dad. Yeah.
1: But this this in particular would have had to have been in discussion.
0: She had the talent to back it up.
1: We also have to mention here that John Peters is responsible for the ambiguous ending to John Norman Howard's character. The original script had him committing suicide. But John Peters didn't think that was a good idea. So he's the one who convinced them to keep it ambiguous, which is just like, why? (laughs) Why? What point did that
0: serve? Huh? It doesn't serve anything. I'm fine with it being a car accident. I don't love that she goes to see him at the site. Uh, Yeah, it's weird. It's super weird.
1: Well, because Barbara can't act her way out of a paper bag in this movie, so that also makes it weird.
0: No, it's it's bad. So it would have been better if it was a little more clean cut.
1: I will say it might not have just been John's fault for that. They did screen two different versions for test audiences. Test audiences overwhelmingly approved the the ambiguous ambiguous ending, so they went with that too. Marketing (sighs) suggested otherwise. Marketing ruins everything, but it made them a shit ton of money, so I guess who cares. Let's talk about a man who kind of tried, kind of was probably drunk. It was Chris Christopherson playing John Norman Howard.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He's mostly remembered as a country music on tour. He was with the whole outlaw scene with Willie and Waylon and the boys. Mm-hmm. But he was a bit of a movie star. Before this, he appeared in the last movie, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, and Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. A very awesome performance. That's an underrated movie I really love. After this, he was in Semi-Tough, Convoy, Heaven's Gate, Flashpoint, Big Top Pee-Wee, Millennium, Lone Star, Blade, Payback, Planet of the Apes, 2001, Blade 2, Blade Trinity, The Jacket, The Wendell Baker Story, Fast Food Nation, He's Just Not That Into You, Dolphin Tale, Joyful Noise, and Dolphin Tale 2. He just does acting gigs for money, I think. Just on the side when he wants to.
0: I I was just like, Dolphin Tale. I was like, wait. Oh, okay. Yeah. I remember. Oh, yeah, he is in that.
1: Yeah. I also forget he's in Blade. He's like yeah. the gruff guy in the Blade movies, which you're like, Chris Christopherson? All right. Which Diana has not mm-hmm. seen. Yeah, well, neither have I. So we, we'll, we'll get on it. <laughs> Look, I know Chris Christopherson's a better actor than this. Like I said, I really love Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, a Scorsese movie that's not bloody and violent. It's actually just a really heartwarming family drama type thing, um, and he's really good in it. I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah, no, it's a little weird, but it's a really good movie. He's a good actor. Here's the thing, though. He's a really good actor in a specific lane because his acting really can only be an extension of his personality.
0: I mean, let's fair. We, we have a lot of actors who we yeah. enjoy who are that way. Uh, we were talking about Owen Wilson as kind of that way.
1: Very much so.
0: Particularly in regards to his voice.
1: And, and part of it is Christopherson's just like, I don't give a fuck. I am who I am. You like me because I have a screen presence that you want in your movie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that I'll I'll act in your movie because you think I'm the right person for it. But otherwise, fuck you. I don't need to be do this.
0: Sure, uh, Technotaro has talked about that too. So it's like I don't I don't play a character. Like we know that, right?
1: Yep. Chris would use more colorful language, but he'd probably tell you the same thing. Sure,
0: he's not bad. There are moments where. I see what's what they're trying for. Like when he's listening to her strum that nonsense that she's doing (laughs) and and he's really enjoying it. And then he passes out. Like That's hilarious. And he plays it very well. But, you know, it's a crap script and there's no direction. So like he's just thrown to the wild. And then he's with Barbara, who we know is a tyrant. So we're just like, you showed up.
1: It's so woefully misplayed against everything else going on in the movie. And then he's got to get up there and do those whack-ass live performance bits that make no goddamn sense. Like, those songs start, and I'm like, this is not Chris Christopherson." now. He gets one song in the whole movie where it's like, okay, there he is. That's what I know he sings well. Why the fuck did you not give him that?
0: Well, and that's the thing that felt was so weird about this script, is that he's already a has-been when we meet him
1: i mean norman Maine is a has-been though
0: well norman Maine, we people are still willing to put up with him yes and here it's barely that everybody's talking about it behind like it's just at least in the 54 version you you see glimpses of it to a degree in this one we never see what people like from him and that is something that the new version got perfectly. They showed us how he was able to suck it up to perform. And then everything else was a mess.
1: Until he couldn't even do that. Anymore.
0: I, and then it became that.
1: Yeah. Because that's the tragedy. And that, that's something the original movie missed, too. Like we said, they didn't Sh- show oh. him performing. And so we never got that. Oh, I get it. It's their stupid idea of what they thought was going on in the 70s. Yeah. Like, and it's all so ridiculously over the top. The whole baby Jesus thing where you're just like, this is a fucking cartoon. Yeah. You could do this so much better. hmm Like, you know you could. At least Libby felt like a human in the 50s version. Mm-hmm. But this is just garbage. And like... Not even in, in the kind of state John Norman Howard was in, could they still pull that kind of bullshit off in real life? Except, you know, when they flew the helicopter over his compound, I am reminded that Chris Christofferson did fly a helicopter onto Johnny Cash's property to give him his demo because he was an army ranger. That's
0: cool. Respect. <laughs> That's a baller move.
1: Christofferson obviously had his issues with production. He and Frank Pearson did not get along because Frank Pearson was a World War II veteran who looked down on Christofferson, who had served in the military but did not fight in Vietnam. Per Chris Christofferson, quote, I was too drunk to give a shit, unquote. <laughs> I want to read his story of this movie getting made because that's the most fun one. <laughs>
0: That's probably the most honest one. Mm-hmm.
1: Where where he's like, oh, I'm not above talking about how much of a douchebag I was, but yeah, like.
0: Exactly. That's where he's probably the most honest about not only everybody else, but like, oh, I was a dick. yeah, Like I was drunk for this or I was a jackass here. And I was like, these people were also assholes.
1: <laughs> these people were worse. He said, quote, filming with Barbara Streisand is an experience which may have cured me of the movies, unquote. It didn't really, but you will also see that he doesn't do a whole lot of big budget, prominent roles. He takes a very specific role in very specific projects.
0: Yeah, because that woman's a tyrant.
1: Uh huh. And he compared making the movie to dealing with Army Ranger School. Yeah. <laughs> Other fun note, while Barbara insisted on recording live for film, we've talked about this. That's something she really wanted. She she does not like to lip sync. Chris was not as enthusiastic about that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was a little trepidatious about putting it on film. He's fine just doing it live in front of whoever, but he's like, I don't know about the camera on top of me either. That's fair. Um, He had to be convinced into that. And for the final credits in the soundtrack album, he wouldn't do it live. He performed in the studio. That's fair. Yeah. Now, who could have been better? And there's some interesting choices here. Okay. Barbara's original choice for this role was Elvis Presley.
0: Ooh.
1: Yeah. Now, again, it's not going to save a ship script. It's really not. But- if you've got a tighter script here, Elvis is a much better allegory to the rock star that we need for this. So much better. And already in that place of being a washed up rock star or considered that by many.
0: Yeah. But the the thing about Elvis is that he's still Elvis.
1: Exactly. Elvis could still be Elvis. Yeah. Whenever he needed to be.
0: Hmm. But then
1: you, he would be getting to play that vulnerability.
0: I wonder if he had
1: interest in it. Well, Barbara went to talk to Elvis directly in 1975 in Las Vegas. Okay. He was ready to do it. (gasps) Colonel Tom Parker, his manager, his legendary manager, Mm. was furious that Barbara hadn't talked to him first. I got to give the bit of credit to Tom Parker. Tom Parker was trying to keep Elvis alive. Yeah, I get that. So I am sure Tom was like, You cannot go around me for something as big a deal as this. Yeah. Especially when I know what he's doing behind the scenes. Yeah. I I think that was probably more what was going on here. He made a lot of demands. He demanded that Elvis would get top billing over Barbara for the film. I'm not mad about that one. And, And I think she was ready to do it, to her credit.
0: I'm sorry, but Elvis hadn't made a movie in, what, 20 years?
1: They wanted an undisclosed amount of money, but it was considered to be very sizable it probably would have been in the 3 to 4 million dollar range i would have to imagine it'd be like half of the budget they already had
0: yeah no that it was probably too much money for for
1: him at that time he had not been in a movie since 1969 the studio could not convince themselves to back such a sizable amount of money for somebody who hadn't shown any box office returns in that long
0: i'm surprised they didn't be like okay look we can't give you that much money but we'll give you points on the back end i don't know which i know
1: they didn't do as often then but i mean to me it sounds like parker heard about this went like this is going to be an absolute nightmare handling wise i can't i can't even do it so he made the most unreasonable demands possible to force no it like, no to they wouldn't happen. they
0: wouldn't do it <sighs> That could have been interesting.
1: Elvis would have been really good.
0: Would have been interesting.
1: Other who could have been better is Marlon Brando.
0: That cam dying fire. God, why? I understand. Oh. He was hot shit. He was hot shit.
1: Also, Mick Jagger. He's not washed up enough. Mick's Nothing. never been. Mick was never the one who was like wishy-washy. Even now he's not washed up. He's just old as fuck. And why how are you still going? It was fucking Keith. Keith was the one who was drugged out. Come on, Neil Diamond now Neil Diamond interested but had too many touring commitments couldn't okay. couldn't drop off. That's a guy who could give James Mason vibes okay, yeah cool. That's a guy who could tone it down, and then as long as long as he had the acting chops, you know he could he could work huh. around it. but Neil Diamond's a guy who who has that more subtle nuance to him, yeah, Kenny Loggins <sighs> oh. Uh, he declined because Loggins and Messina were touring at the time. He did co-write a song for the film, "I Believe in Love." Okay. Oh, too too pretty faced. He could have been like he could have been the Danny composer friend to Barbara or something, but he uh-huh. could never play this role. <laughs> Kenny Loggins now looks like he's like thirty five. He's always been a baby face, and now the movie that I really wished had gotten made, if it was the original script, the gritty tone it down no frills option Uh carly simon and james taylor that's who this movie was originally written for Huh. oh my god that would be a good movie carly simon has pop star presence she could pull off those big type of numbers and james taylor lived that hard hard life he knew that life Again, it's got to be a stripped down version. It can't be a big budget motion picture. Like there's no way you could do that.
0: Which that's how they tried to film this one, but um that could that could be interesting.
1: That's the movie I want to see. Okay. Unfortunately, James Taylor had sworn off movies after he filmed what he considered to be a torturous process in Two Lane Blacktop, a oh. car chase movie. <laughs> but god, what could have been there if barbara and john peters and bullshit hadn't gone through let's talk about our one remaining main actor and that is a very 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 young gary Busey playing bobby richie we've talked about him before in point break before this he was in wild in the streets thunderbolt and lightfoot and the gumball rally after this the buddy holly story big wednesday Carney, barbarossa dc cab lethal weapon predator 2 The player under siege, the firm rookie of the year, breaking point, surviving the game, black sheep, lost highway, fear and living in Las Vegas, soldier, and now literally any role that anyone will give him because he's that guy. I mean, Gary Busey at least knows what he's what movie he's in. Maybe he showed up and got a paycheck. Yeah,
0: pretty much. Okay. Yeah. He did what he was asked to do, no more, no less, and that's fine. And I that's nothing against him.
1: He's a better foil to Chris Christopherson than Barbara. Yeah. Whatever. This movie is terrible. Let's move on to our puns. Playing the Oreos, the backup singers to Esther, we have Vanetta Fields and Clyde King. They are both longtime backup singers. Vanetta Fields sang on Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, and both of them sang on the Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street. So anytime you hear the soulful backup singers in the background on that classic album, you are hearing Vanetta and Clyde. Okay. Playing Brian, the manager, we have Paul Mazursky, a very well-known comedic performer, and then a writer-director who made Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice and Down and Out in Beverly Hills. We have credited altogether The Speedway, John's band. This is a lot of Chris's buddies, musician friends, and also his backup band for touring. The biggest name out of that whole group is Booker T. Jones of the band Booker T. and the MGs, whose song Green Onions you would know very well, especially if you've seen The Sandlot. Mm -hmm. You've heard Booker T. and the MGs at some point in your life, I guarantee it. We have Bill Graham playing himself. This is the legendary concert promoter, owner of the Fillmore concert halls. He also appeared as the concert promoter in Apocalypse Now. Okay. But he is just a rock music guy. Rita Coolidge playing herself at the Grammys. We've actually talked about her before because she sang the theme song All Time High for the Bond film Octopussy.
0: Oh, okay.
1: But at the time, she was also married to Chris Christofferson. Hmm. We have Tony Orlando playing Tony Orlando, also at the Grammys. He is the famous Tony Orlando, Tony Orlando went on. <laughs> we have Robert England as Marty freddy fucking krueger <laughs> so we're
0: watching this and i'm just like wait i know that guy i don't know that who is that who is that it's like someone from game of thrones who is that who is that I'm like wait that's robert england and the only reason his name popped up because i recently watched the netflix show movies that made us <laughs> and they just did one on uh nightmare on elm street and robert england's in that and i was just like so i just looked at his face and i was just
1: like oh my god Apparently, during that fight scene, Christopherson broke his nose. Hmm. Christopherson thought England was actually a stunt person, not an actor. And so he thought that because he was a stunt person, they would be able to get a little bit more close and rough and tumble with the fight. Uh
0: Because
1: the stunt guys know how to take a punch and, and, you know. Just understood. (laughs) And they would probably be telling him, like, okay, I can take this punch. We could do this. And he didn't realize he was dealing with an actor who was not ready to pull that punch. After finding out that England was an actor, Christopherson felt so bad that he invited England over to his trailer to drink some wine and show him that he had no hard feelings and that it was a complete misunderstanding.
0: Well, that's
1: sweet. Yep. I was like, you know what? Good on you, Chris. <laughs> that's that's just unfortunate oopsies. Uh-huh. As a table guest at the Grammy Awards, we have Roslyn Kind. This is Barbara's sister. Okay. And finally, as the groupie in the limousine inviting Chris Christofferson in for some adrenaline, Susan Richardson, who played Susan on Eight is Enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it got started like the next year, which is just like, well, all right. Very different transition in roles, but okie dokie. All right, let's talk a little bit of trivia. Not a lot. We're almost done with this stupid movie. The rock concert footage was filmed for a crowd of 47,000 people at Sun Devil Stadium in Tempe, Arizona. All this was done at the Arizona State Campus, which was like, what? There must have been some tax break to do it there. Mm -hmm. The concert was booked by Bill Graham, and it featured other performers who we should have fucking seen. We briefly hear one performer of the band Montrose. They're Mm -hmm. the ones who are playing the rock song as they're flying in on the helicopter. But also, Santana and Peter Frampton played at that concert mm-hmm. with Barbara and Chris headlining it, which I mean, fine, it's a movie event thing. The ticket price for that concert was $3.50. That roughly equates to $17 today. Also, the fundraiser and final concert were filmed at Arizona State's Greedy Gammage Auditorium designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. And speaking of that American Indian benefit concert Mm -hmm. just to add to how fucking hollow this movie is Mm -hmm. if you are watching during that benefit in the front row there are two Sikh Indians dressed in full Sikh attire and an indigenous American separated by two white people those are the only people of any Indian or indigenous descent in the auditorium
0: my body hurts (laughs)
1: I... Wow. I no. And now let's talk about awards. This was nominated for four Academy Awards. Why? Best Cinematography. Why? What? It looks like garbage. <laughs> was garbage. Best Sound. You can't hear anybody's dialogue for like the first half of the movie. Mm-hmm. Best Original Song Score or Adaptation Score. No, the songs suck. All those lost, but it did win an Oscar. Why? For best original song. No. Love, soft as an easy chair. chair.
0: The lazy boy song.
1: Evergreen, the love theme from A Star Is Born, won the Academy Award for best original song. And of course, it's one of the songs Barbara co-wrote. It's not even the best song in the fucking movie, but she co-wrote it. So that's the one that they submitted, of course course
0: i mean i i do get that but this song is garbage it's so bad
1: now we could maybe forgive that it's the 70s there was some real garbage song so maybe it didn't have any competition except that it did because it beat gonna fly now from rocky <laughs> let's be clear gonna fly now also just a cheesy 70s song better than this it's way better than this. It actually has a point. By a lot. And also, it lasts. You can still hear that on the radio today sometimes.
0: And like, I would much rather hear that song. And they still play that that song at, at football games. Uh-huh,
1: yeah. You know why? Because it's inspirational as fuck. That's why. It's aspirational as fuck makes you want to eat three raw eggs and run down the street as fast as you possibly can. It makes you want to
0: be a badass. (laughs) I'm going to fuck some shit up and be my best self. (laughs) That's what that song is about. This song is about a lazy boy chair. It is not evergreen. This song dies on the vine.
1: The only appropriate rating system that we can give this movie is the easy chair. That Barbara is referring to. Yes. That she equates with love. Yes. That's it. That's the only one I can do now. Yep. How many love easy chairs are you going to give this movie?
0: None. Because I would leave it on the side of the road, broken down on the for bulk trash to pick it up.
1: Zero fucking easy chairs. And you know what that means? This is our lowest rated film of all time.
0: Like lower than slap shot. Lower than slap shot. That made us so mad we had to go watch another movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And RoboCop. RoboCop was also our other... They were tied, I think.
1: Yeah. Damn, damn. This is our lowest rated film now. But Slapshot had, like, two redeeming jokes. It had a joke. <laughs> <laughs> this movie has nothing. Nothing. It is pure garbage. Yes. I recommend no one ever see this film.
0: Don't watch this film. We one. finished
1: the movie, and I said, "Hey." Is there some way we can petition HBO Max to somehow just delete it from existence? Can we somehow, like, retcon that and just make sure this never happened? Mm-hmm. Ugh!
0: I'm so mad.
1: I'm, I'm so mad, so too. I'm angry.
0: My heart hurts.
1: Let's see if we can lighten the fucking mood. At least a tiny bit.
0: Oh, goodness. <sighs> I, I certainly hope so.
1: Because I've got the horse right here. His name is Paul Revere. Oh, God. We're watching Guys and Dolls.
0: Yes, we're doing Guys and Dolls next.
1: We have to deal with Marlon Brando. But we do get Frank Sinatra. And we like Frank Sinatra. We're not anti-Frank Sinatra. Frank hasn't steered us wrong yet. 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 I mean, <laughs> this series has been any indication. Some of our some of our faves might uh, might steer us in the wrong oh. way.
0: Well, until next time.
1: Have a good movie.